Hey, this is Pastor John Ryan Cantu from Numa Church in Houston, Texas. Thank you for listening to the message today. I hope that it blesses you and all those that you share it with. God bless you. Without any further ado, Brother Michael, uh, come and give us what God has spoken over your life. All right. Good morning, church. It is good to be here. Uh, first and foremost, I want to just express my gratitude to, to Pastor Ryan. Uh, I want to thank him for giving me this opportunity. It's not an opportunity I take lightly. Uh, this is, I, I value this very much. Um, and I believe that it is an honor and a privilege to be up here. Um, and so thank you, Pastor Ryan, for giving me this opportunity. <clears throat> um, and the reason I'm up here is because I believe that this is a message that's been on my heart for a while. I actually think I spoke to Pastor Ryan like months ago about the possibility of, of speaking, and that was really when this was starting to stir in my heart, and uh, I felt like it was something that needed to be said. Um, and so, ultimately, I hope this message speaks to you all the same way that it's spoken to me. That's a great thing about uh, sermons and things like that is they always preach to the person that's giving them first, and then they're spread to everybody else. So uh, today I want to speak from a passage of scripture. We're going to do kind of a deep dive into a passage of scripture. Um, And if I can make a bold statement up front, I believe this to be one of, if not the most important and potentially challenging passage of scripture for the American church today. In fact, uh, the theologian Adolf Harnack labeled this passage of scripture as the greatest, strongest, deepest thing that Paul ever wrote. And I've titled my message this morning, When All Else Fails. when all else fails. So if you have your Bibles with you, and if you don't have a Bible with you, if you have a smartphone with you, it's a free download, and you get like a hundred Bibles, it's great. So, uh, but if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. (laughs) I know. And while you're turning there, um, just to give some context, uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, The Apostle Paul, uh, if you don't know who he is, he wrote a majority of the New Testament. And he did so a lot of the time in the form of letters to various churches throughout the Roman Empire. And uh, 1 Corinthians, oddly enough, not the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians, but that's neither here nor there, uh, is a letter to, to the church in Corinth. And I believe, as I've kind of studied the church in Corinth and things like that, I believe that there's a lot of similarities, a lot of parallels between the American church and the church in Corinth. Um, Various things are both fairly prosperous churches, uh, both had their highs and their lows, uh, which we might kind of dive into a little bit today. Uh, But hopefully you've gotten to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to start right from the top. If I speak with the tongues of mankind and of angels... Oh, also, I'm going to be reading from the, Nash, uh, the NASB version, um, but uh, you can read whatever version you want to read. If I speak with the tongues of mankind and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing." And if I give away all my possessions to charity, and if I surrender my body so that I may glorify God, but do not have love, it does me no good. We're going to pause there for a moment. Uh, 
this is a little scathing, <laughs> a little bit, to the Corinthian church. Um, and to give you a little more background, uh, previously in the, in the previous chapter, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Paul is going over spiritual gifts. And there's something you have to understand about the church in Corinth. It's that they highly regarded spiritual gifts. They found spiritual gifts to be very important. They held them in, in a very high regard. And Paul is reminding them that that's not what it's all about. You see, uh, the church in Corinth held spiritual gifts in such a high regard that at times they neglected the importance of love. Uh, you know, in the, in the church in Corinth, if one person had one spiritual gift and somebody else had another spiritual gift, and they thought that spiritual gift was cooler, well, then you were a highly valued person and more valuable than that person. And so Paul spends all of chapter 12 reminding them, no, everybody's part of this. No, nothing's greater than anything else. All that kind of stuff. He's reminding them of that. Um, but again, the, the church in Corinth, one of their flaws was that they held certain things in a higher regard than the importance of love. And I'm concerned at times that the church in America right now might find itself in a similar situation at times. We sometimes place so many things in such high regard that we sometimes forget the main ingredient. We put on emphasis in the music, the programs, the church culture, the money, all of that kind of stuff. And I think at times we hold it in a higher value than we do love. And Paul is telling us that without love, it's all for nothing. At the beginning of this message, I told you that I believe this passage of Scripture to be the most important and the most challenging for the American church. And I have to admit that in the past few years, I've seen in our society, Christians do and say and post things that do not reflect love. And I wonder if just like the church in Corinth, it's because we've lost our focus a little bit and we put other things first. So the next obvious question for the church in Corinth and for us is how do we know we have love? What is love like? And Paul says, I'm so glad you asked. Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act disgracefully. It does not seek its own benefit. It is not provoked. does not keep an account of a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It keeps every confidence. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And no, you did not just wander into a wedding ceremony. <laughs> and in fact, I feel that at times we sometimes relegate this passage of Scripture to those kind of things. Um, but I think that does a huge disservice to what this passage of Scripture is telling us. Uh, you see, back in the day, and in, in that time, they wrote these, uh, these letters and things in Greek. And the Greeks were smart, and they had multiple words for love. And so there were different variations of love. In English, I love pizza and I love my wife. It's the same thing. But in Greek, <laughs> but in Greek, however close those things may be, in Greek, they had multiple words. And the word that's used here and throughout majority of the New Testament when, when speaking about love is agape. And um, agape love is just an unconditional, divine, pure love. It's the love that God has for us and that we should have for God and the love that we should have for one another. And so, when we look at this passage of Scripture, when we look at verses 4 through, four through 6, uh, 4 through 7, uh, 
Paul is giving us a recipe for what real, authentic, Christ-like love looks like. To understand how we are to love, we must understand what Paul is telling us here. So we're going to break it down a little bit. We're going to take each of these things and take a moment to reflect on them. Starting with, love is patient. Of course, we can look at this on the surface. Are you patient with your kids? What about the waiter that's taking a little too long to get your drinks? The Houston traffic? Are we patient in the, in the little things? But what I like is that the Greek word that's actually used here for patience can also be defined as long-suffering or suffering and wait. <clears throat> On a deeper level, some of you have been waiting for that friend or family member or coworker to just get it together, to get on the right track. You see them suffering, and you know what the answer is, but they're just not getting it. Are you willing to wait for them? Are you going to get frustrated? Are you going to belittle them? Will you count them as a lost cause like the rest of the world already has? Because love is patient. Love does not give up, even on the least of these. Love is kind. This is really cool because what's unique here is that the verb that Paul uses for kind, it's the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. Um, and some scholars even say Paul may have coined it. Um, that he he kind of made this word. And it's, in the context of it, it's combining goodness and kindness into one. And we, we need to take note that Paul does not say love is kind to those that are kind to us. <laughs> love is kind to everyone. In every interaction, are we kind? In the things that we say, the things that we do, the way that we treat people, are we kind? How about behind their back? Are we still kind? It's easy to be kind to somebody's face, but it takes integrity to be kind behind somebody's back. And are we just kind with our words or are we also kind with our actions? It's also easy to say nice things about somebody, but to actually do nice things for somebody takes a little more effort. It must be both. And are we kind to those that look and act and believe and live differently than we do? Or do we wait until people fit the mold to start giving kindness to them? Love is kind. Love is not jealous. This one sounds easy uh, until you realize that it extends beyond merely possessions. Uh, We can sit here and go, oh, I'm not jealous. Like, I got what I need. I'm not jealous of what, you know, what others have. But I've, growing up in church, I've seen a form of jealousy that we sometimes forget um, that can do real damage once it's manifested. In churches, you'll see things like a worship pastor that somebody comes along and they maybe sing a little bit better, or the Bible study teacher that lets somebody take their class and they teach a little bit better. And all of a sudden, that fear turns into jealousy. And then that jealousy splits people. And they begin to push people out for simply doing a good job. Another way I've seen this worded, love is not displeased at the success of others. When we, when we begin to let that jealousy sit in, when we begin to push people away because of what they do, if somebody is better than you at something, praise God. Praise God. If they... That should be our first inclination, should be to be happy for them, to, to not be jealous, but
but to understand that God raises up people for specific times and specific circumstances. For where je- jealousy lies in the soil, struggle, uh, love will struggle to grow. You can't have jealousy and have love at the same time. Love does not brag. Your version may say love does not boast. We all have our talents and our gifts and our abilities, but love is not concerned with asserting itself. It's concerned with giving itself. God did not give us our gifts to be placed on a pedestal, but to be used in the service of others. If all we do is brag about what we can do, we're not helping anybody. When we become prideful in the things that we do, we can begin to see others as inferior. And when we see others as inferior, we cannot see them as children of God. And if you cannot see them as children of God, love cannot exist in that place. And just like that one, love is not arrogant. Are we willing to learn from others? Are we willing to set aside pride? And are we willing to admit that we don't know it all? My social media feeds seem to be filled with all of a sudden medical experts who then become foreign policy advisors, who then become experts of biblical doctrine and theology. Man, somebody should hire these people because they know everything. Love is not arrogant. Love requires us to meet others where they are, to have empathy. An arrogant spirit cannot be an empathetic spirit. I think of the story where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, a job that was relegated to the servants because Jesus understood that sometimes we need to take a step beneath the people that are beneath us. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act disgracefully or to act without grace. Do we make a scene at the slightest inconvenience? The barista at Starbucks gets our order wrong and we turn the whole place over. Do we... This can kind of cover a lot of ground. Love does not act disgracefully. Do we hold ourselves with the honor and dignity that we should have, or do we engage in the things that we agreed with God were not good for us? And do we show the same grace that Christ has shown us, or are we hesitant to forgive others and let things go? Love does not act disgracefully. Love does not seek its own benefit. We live in a culture here in America that preaches the false gospel of self-interest. This gospel teaches that we must look out for the benefits of ourselves before the benefit of others. What's best for me has to be what's best. My way or the highway. And sadly, this false gospel has begun to seep into the American church itself, a mindset of, I must increase even if it means you decrease. However, love says no. You must increase, even if it means I must decrease. I'm sure Jesus would have loved to not endure the pain and the suffering of the cross. However, his love for us made him say, I will give myself for your sake. Love at its basic foundation is the sacrifice of a part of oneself for the benefit of another. Love is not provoked. Your translation probably says, love is not easily angered. And the dictionary definition of provoked is to incite anger or to stir up purposefully. When you're scrolling through social media and you see that post and you're like, how could they even think that? And you type out your angry response and you're, "Ah, I'm so, well, congratulations, you've been provoked. Um, Or 
if you know, that, you know, that person at work that you're just constantly getting in arguments with. Whatever it might be. The family member. Thanksgiving, you dread it because you know that something's going to come up. Love is not provoked. Love lets things slide. Let's things pass. Not everything requires a response. Love is not provoked. Love does not keep an account of a wrong suffered. For some of you, this may be the hardest piece of this. I cannot stand here and even imagine the hurt that some of you have endured at the hands of someone else. Just statistically speaking, there are people in this room that have been hurt in indescribable ways. So when interpreting what Paul has written here, rest assured that I've kept you in mind. What I believe Paul is telling us here is that in order to effectively love, we must be able to, one, forgive, and two, move forward. Love and a grudge cannot hold the same place in your heart. Now, this does not mean that you have to go back to the person that hurts you or that you have to interact with them in any capacity or even that they should not face the consequences of what they've done. What it means is that we leave the door open for redemption. It means that you must seek to love them. That will look different for every journey, but at the very least, it means hoping and praying that they change and that they never cause the same hurt again. And it's not even for the sake of the one who hurts you, but for your sake and for the sake of the life that you still have left ahead of you, love does not keep an account of a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Another way I've seen this put is love does not delight in the misfortune of others. In our day and age, we see this all the time in the media. Every headline is promoting the faults and the flaws and the evils of the world, and we consume it like it's candy. Love seeks out good, not evil. Have you ever met somebody that all they can ever seem to talk about is all the negative things going on? All of the problems, the doom and the gloom, all of that. They might be consumed by the evil of the world and not even realize it. They may be delighting. They're just waiting for that headline to tell them that the world's ending, and they're just waiting for it. And then love rejoices in the truth. Love and truth go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. Love without truth is inauthentic and naive and artificial. Truth without love is condescending and harsh and ineffective. In some ways, we have become obsessed with this idea of truth at all costs to the point that we use it as a weapon. Well, it's the truth, or I'm just telling it like it is. Yet when we leave love out of the equation, truth, however honest it may be, will manifest itself as arrogance and pride. Ever heard the phrase, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus tells us the truth will set you free. So if the truth you are speaking feels more like shackles than it does liberation, you are either speaking truth without love or you're not speaking truth at all. Love is all of these things. This is the recipe for love. This. Paul spelled it out for us. I can go ahead and have the band come up. This is the recipe for real, authentic, Christ-like love. Imagine for a moment with me a church that looks like this. Because there is a world outside those doors that is seeking something. 
And at its core, what they are seeking is not great music or programs or events or even teaching. They are seeking a church that will love them the way Christ loves them. I don't know about you, but when I enter into glory and I stand before God, I think it's a much less likely conversation that God will say, Michael, while you were on earth, you loved a little too much. I think a much more likely conversation could be, Michael, here's all the opportunities I gave you to love and you didn't take them. And I don't want to have that conversation. And for some reason in our society, acts of love in some ways have been equated to acts of weakness. That if I show people love, then I am gullible and naive and I don't understand how the world works. Well, maybe I don't know how the world works, but I know how the kingdom works. And the kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. I believe the future of the church is dependent on how we love outside the church. This may ruffle some feathers, but I truly believe that what we as the church, the body believers can do outside the walls of this building is far more important and far more impactful than anything we could ever do inside of it. Because that world out there that's hurting, we can either stand back and tell them everything that's wrong with them, or we can go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus. We can choose to love the sinners, the outcasts, the lost, and the broken. But love is an action. It is patient and it is kind. It is not jealous or easily angered. It rejoices in the truth. <sighs> love is not something we say we do. It is something we do. Paul put it pretty bluntly at the beginning of chapter 13. We can do everything else to the T. But without love, we are nothing. We are ineffective. And I don't, know, I don't want to be a part of an ineffective church. I don't want the next generation to be a part of an ineffective church. When I teach the high schoolers on Wednesday nights, while I love the Bible study and the prayer and the conversations that we have and just getting to pour life into these students, the main thing that I want them to walk away with when they move on is to have a love like Christ. And why do we love? Because when the tongues and the prophecy and the charity and the lights and the music and the programs and the arguments and the politics and the doctrine and the theology, when all else fails, love doesn't. It's right there in verse 8. Love never fails. You want to see revival. You want to see the outcast invited in. You want to see the broken restored. You want to see the people in the, your community come to know the same Savior, the same Redeemer, the same great counselor that you have. Love never fails. Show love. And we don't show love for what we get out of it. We show love because God shows us love, even when we don't deserve it. It comes as no surprise that when asked the greatest commandment in the entire law of Moses, the law that was the moral compass for the Jewish world, that Jesus answered with, the greatest commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And we usually stop there, but if we do, we lose a huge piece of what Jesus is saying. He finishes it by saying, upon these two commandments hangs the whole law. Jesus understood that if we can love God and we can love people, just like Paul instructs us to, 
in 1 Corinthians 13, then we can rest assured that we're doing it right. That we are doing something right. We are on the right track. Because the whole law rests beneath it. This is one of those messages that I don't really think requires a a call to the altar as much as it does a call to action. And we'll have a time where we go into worship and and all of that. But I want to give you a practical exercise to try. And it's going to be weird, but all good exercises are. When you go to finish your day, when you go to, as as your day is winding down and you're getting ready for bed, take a moment to look in the mirror and repeat verses four through through six. But when you do it, phrase it like this. Today, Michael was patient. Today, Michael was kind. Today, Michael was not jealous. Michael did not brag, was not arrogant. Michael did not act disgracefully. Michael did not seek his own benefit. Michael was not provoked. Michael did not keep an account of a wrong suffered. Michael did not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoiced with the truth. And then, while looking yourself in the eye, if at any point you lied to yourself, then you know exactly what you need to work on tomorrow. Love never fails. It must be at the center of everything that we do, because if we do it without love, it's pointless. And as the worship team leads us into a time of worship, I want us to take this opportunity to reflect and to seek the wisdom and the power of God so that we can leave here a church that is equipped to love, to love God and to love people. And as you reflect on that, think of it like a cup. God pours out, or maybe even more like a fountain. It's probably a better example. God pours out his love on us and then it spills over and pours out onto everyone we come in contact with. So if you'll stand with me and I'm going to pray and then the worship team will lead us. Um, but first, there's, there's one thing that I want to do and I don't know, I might be stealing this opportunity from Pastor Ryan, but it's something we do every week. But maybe you're in here and you've don't know what this kind of love looks like. You don't know what a love that is patient and kind and on all these things is like. You don't know what this pure, authentic love looks like, but you want it. Well, I have good news for you. It's free. All you have to do is accept it. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and he lived a sinless life, but he died a death he didn't deserve so that you could live a life that you don't deserve. And so I want to take this opportunity for anybody in this room that maybe you, you want to be a part of that. You want to feel that love and you want to accept Jesus into your life and you want to follow him and you want to not just experience this love, but then also give this kind of love to others. So if everybody would bow their heads, close their eyes, If that's you in this room, I would love for you to raise your hand in boldness. Amen. I see you. I see you. 
three, maybe four. Three, maybe four people just gave their life to Jesus this morning. And I just want to remind us that and remind you that just made that commitment that this is not easy. I told you at the beginning this was a challenging passage of scripture. It's beautiful and it's poetic, but it's a challenge. To do this is hard. We do it because it's hard. The rest of the world doesn't get, it gets the luxury that we don't get to not have to love unconditionally. They get the easy route. God, we thank you so much for this message and for this time. I pray that this message would pierce the hearts of everyone in this room, that we would feel called to leave these doors and go out. Pastor Maritza said it, we gotta leave here better than we came. We gotta go out those doors and we gotta love better. We've gotta do good. We have to be the hands and feet of Jesus because there's communities out there that are hurting and they need somebody that's just going to tell them that they love them. And I pray that you would equip us to be those people. We thank you so much for all that you've done for us and all that you're going to do through us. In your name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like some more information on Numa Church, visit us on our website at mynumachurch.org. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share it with your friends on social media and tag us at mynumachurch. Thanks again and God bless.